You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. Today we're going to talk about Jesus. Now, we talk about Jesus every Sunday, right? Because we exist as a body of believers to glorify Jesus Christ. Um, so every week we talk about Jesus. However, this week we're literally going to like talk about Jesus in his life and was he a God-man or was he a superhero, these kinds of things. We're going to look at who Jesus was. Um, before we dive into that, it's been a week since we have talked about what we believe in this series. We had a guest speaker last week, excellent message. I hope you all took his challenge to heart to pray for the person who is sitting in front of you and touch base with that person this week. So if you've forgotten about that, you have 30 minutes to figure out who you were praying for and remember to go talk to them after church, right? Um, So a few things that we want to remind ourselves on before we continue. Um, We believe in the Bible, right? Uh, We get everything we know about God from this and how we should relate to people and and God through this word. Uh, We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it teaches the truth, that it's without error, that it's historically attested. Remember that it's uh, it's the only document on the face of the planet that has as much history supporting it um, to say that everything in here is accurate. We also believe that because it's the word of God and it is teaching truth, that it's alive and it changes lives. That when you read the words in here, the Holy Spirit will bring to you a new life and an understanding of your life in relationship with God and with others. This book changes lives and we believe that. That's why we teach and preach from it, why we study it, why we memorize it. And, uh, and so we hold it dear to us. Um, we also believe in the Trinity. Remember, this is the three-in-one kind of product here, only it's not a product, it's God. There is only one God, right? But there are three divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they are co-equal and co-eternal. That's the Trinity in a nutshell. One God, three persons, they are co-equal. There is not one that is greater than the other. There is not one that does more than the other. They fulfill different roles in the life of a believer and in the history of the church. But it is one God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit, that are all wrapped up into one God who is co-equal, co-eternal, pre-existing the world, creator God, these kinds of things. This is what we believe about the Bible and about the Trinity. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus. Um, It's the third thing that we really believe as Christians. We believe in Jesus. But we need to clarify what we mean when we say, we believe in Jesus. The video that we saw was just a funny little snapshot of culture. Culture believes a lot of things about Jesus. Some of them are accurate biblically. Some of them are inaccurate biblically. There are other religious systems out there that talk about Jesus but not necessarily the Jesus of the Bible that we hold dear. So we need to clarify when we say, I believe in Jesus, there are certain things we need to understand and agree upon about who Jesus is. Because this is a culture, or this is a question that culture asks all the time. And maybe not in these words. Maybe you don't hear the question, who is Jesus, when you're in the grocery store. Maybe a stranger doesn't walk up to you and go, what do you think about Jesus? Tell me about the Jesus you believe in. Um, but culture asks the question all, that, uh, all throughout history. Was he really man? Did he really come to earth? Did he wrap himself in flesh? Was he really God? If he was a man in flesh, he certainly wasn't God, was he? Well, what did he look like? Did he have long hair or short hair? Um, not that it really matters, but people ask these questions about Jesus. Was he Superman? Uh, a man with just extra power? Was he a guru that sat on a mountaintop like Rafiki from The Lion King, meditating upon the greater things in life. Was he a nice guy or a wise man? Was he a hero? Was he a lunatic? Did he really walk on the earth? Did he eat? Did he joke? Did he have money? Was he poor? Was he a happy guy or a serious guy most of the time? And who really cares if his mom was a virgin, right? Not... Not important, society might tell you. Did he have friends or was he an outcast when he was growing up? Did he ever sin? And what does it matter if he did or didn't sin anyway? Did he ever make his parents mad? Was he a good student in the Torah school? Did he really die or was he just faking it? 
And if he really died, did he really raise from the dead? And if so, where is he? Does he care about us? Does he know my name? He couldn't possibly understand my problems if I don't understand my problems. And if he showed up on my door, would I recognize him? These are the questions that culture asks. They ask them in sitcoms. They ask them in movies. They ask them in conversations around coffee and in churches and all over the place. The world is really asking the question, who is Jesus and what is he for me? What does he do for me? How do I relate to him? Um, We want a Jesus that relates to us, right? We want a Jesus who gets us. Um, Culture takes that one step too far and says, I want a Jesus that I can relate to, therefore I'm going to bring God Jesus down to my level. Rather than saying, there is God Jesus who entered into humanity and brings me towards his level. And there's two different ways of looking at Jesus. We need to look at the Jesus that Jesus is, not the Jesus that we would make him out to be. He is God, part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, existed before the creation of the world. Then he created us. Therefore, we don't get to determine who he is. He named us, right? Um, we're going to talk about this in, in the coming weeks when we start talking about the Ten Commandments. But one of the things that I'm learning, and here's a nugget that I'm just excited about, so I'm going to share with you. One of the things I'm learning about authority structure is that, well, we had a child. We named her, right? She's ours. We got the right to name her. That's an act of creation. It's an act of authority over someone to give them a name and an identity and a place to live. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they're all God. They're all creator God. They created the earth and everything in it. And then they created Adam and Eve. They named Adam and Eve and are in authority over Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve got to name the animals but did not get to name God. Meaning we don't get to determine who God is. He is who he is, and we are told who he is, and then have a choice to respond, and that yes, I agree with that, or no, I will not agree with that. Those are the two perspectives. You can agree or not agree with who God is. There's really nothing in the middle. As Christians, though, we choose to believe in biblical Jesus, not cultural Jesus. Um, Cultural Jesus, you see all kinds of things. Jesus with long flowing hair, Um, Jesus with short, scruffy hair, Jesus who is um, really holy all the time and never laughed. That sounds like boring Jesus. And then there's Jesus who, you know, flips the cart over in the temple and gets angry. And how do you reconcile really holy Jesus that never, you know, seems to have messy hair and always is wearing a white tunic and never does anything out of the ordinary with Jesus who flips a temple or the, turns the money changers over and then Um, Jesus who sits around the campfire with 12 uneducated men. How does Jesus, who is um, an excellent student of the Torah, a man who also has a temper, a man who also tells jokes with 12 guys around a campfire, um, we need to believe in the biblical Jesus and not what culture would tell us or not tell us about him. We believe that we are made in his image, not vice versa. We just spoke about that. We believe a lot of things about Jesus because our faith is wrapped up in him. Apart from him, we wouldn't exist, right? Do you believe that? Because that's a good starting point this morning. Apart from Jesus, we wouldn't exist. Our world wouldn't be. The universe wouldn't spin. Um, It would be devoid of matter. Apart from Jesus, we have nothing. We are nothing. Um, We need Jesus in our life. And what you choose to believe about Jesus determines the rest of your life and beyond. Okay? What you believe about Jesus determines the rest of your earthly life and then your eternity beyond that. The question of who is Jesus is not one that you can shrug off. It's one that you have to dive into and wrestle with. And so we'll do that this morning. We're going to read uh, in Colossians, and I marked the wrong passage in my book. So if you would just flip with me um, to Colossians 1. Start in verse 13, and we'll go to 22 this morning. And this is a poem, if you will, in the original language. 
in my heading, it says the preeminence of Christ. So you can follow along in your scriptures, Colossians 1, 13 to 22, or if you'd like, just close your eyes and listen. Either way works. Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things are held together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, am a minister. This is the word of God for you this morning. Amen? This is good stuff. There's a couple other poems about Jesus in the scriptures. Now, one of them is in Ephesians. talks about the spiritual blessings that we have through Christ. Um, you can read Ephesians chapter 1 if you want to find out what those are. Again, It's as if the early writers were writing these songs to Jesus saying, you are so awesome and here's all of the awesomeness about you. And you really can't contain all of God's awesomeness um, on one page, but they gave a really good go in certain locations, captured a great many things about Jesus and who he is. So let's take a moment and define biblical Jesus. Because we don't believe in cultural Jesus, we believe in biblical Jesus. And these are the things that we believe are true about biblical Jesus, that he is the creator God, that he was born of a virgin, that he is fully God and fully man at the same time, that he lived a perfect and sinless life, never once sinned, that he really physically died, and that he really physically rose from death. We believe that biblical Jesus is currently reigning as king and that he will come again one day in glory. This is the summation of Jesus's everything. There are other things about Jesus in the scriptures that we believe, but these are the things that define us as Christians. If you remove one of these things, um, you're no longer worshiping biblical Jesus. You can't remove one of these things and still believe in Jesus of the Bible. You can't remove his death. If he didn't really die, your salvation is in question. You can't remove the fully God, fully man aspect because then the atonement doesn't work. You can't remove the fact that he was creator God because then the Trinity is flawed and your idea of God as whole falls apart. You can't remove the will come again one day because where's our hope then? This might be all we have. These things we hold to be true about Jesus. And let's go ahead and dive into them just a little bit. We'll explain them a little further. We believe that Jesus is creator God. In John chapter 1, and you can follow along or just make notes and you can go back and read and make sure I'm not telling you falsehoods later. Um, In John chapter 1, the whole chapter actually is uh, about Jesus in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made. In him was light, and the light was the light of the world. It goes on and on to extol the fact that Jesus is the creator God. He he existed before the world, and he created the world. And then in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, which we just read, it says he created all things. Um, 
We talked about it two, two weeks ago or so when we talked about the Trinity. I'm not going to belabor the point too much. Jesus is God. Um, and one of the things that I love about this Colossians verse that we just read, he is before all things, okay? And in him, all things hold together. In him, all things are held together. He is the glue that holds your life together. That's what that phrase means to me, that Jesus is the glue that keeps my life from falling apart. And when I chunk a piece off because I, I drop the ball somewhere, Jesus superglues it back and redeems those moments in my life for something greater. In him, all things are held together. That's good hope. Uh, that's good hope right there. So we believe that he's creator God. We also believe that he's born of a virgin. This is something that some people will tell you is not true. How could someone be born of a virgin? It's just not really possible in our understanding of birth. But Jesus is God and is God's son not by adoption, as we are God's sons and daughters by adoption. He is God's son by the very nature of his being. He was born not of man's will, but the Holy Spirit descended upon Mary and Jesus was conceived without the mark of original sin that everyone else born into creation has inherited through Adam. Thank you, Adam, right? The birth narratives in the gospel have as their centerpiece the entrance into humanity of the supernatural into the ordinary, right? Of the God into the flesh, the incarnation. That's what it means. When we talk about the incarnation of Jesus, in means to obviously be in. Carne, like you've heard of carne asada, chili con carne. It's, okay, it's the part of the word that means flesh, okay? Um, so, in carne, in flesh. Jesus came in the flesh, God in flesh. And those words describe something that happened at God's initiative, which is unprecedented, unprecedented and never has happened again. God, the Holy Spirit, descended upon Mary. Mary conceived a child which was fully man and fully God, born of a virgin. And it's a new beginning that God started, one that would endure forever and ever. According to Luke 1, the baby that is to be born will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That doesn't happen to man. Man doesn't get to rule on God's throne. God does not step aside and say, oh, you want to know what? You're a really awesome person. I'm going to give you my throne forever and eternity. Jesus is not simply man. He is man and God. The reason for this divine intervention, for God becoming flesh born of a virgin, is for the redemptive well-being of creation. Matthew specifically says... He will save his people from their sins. And God's unique presence in Jesus' birth makes very real the promise of salvation, which the people had been holding to. Salvation to Israel and to the world. And the virgin birth gives us the first glimpse of the extent of God's love for all people. And then the son's earthly life is lived and ended. And it's a necessary, it's a necessary evil that Christ would die. For our sins. He was born of a virgin, meaning he was not conceived by mankind and not bearing the curse of the fall that we all bear. And because of that, we believe that Jesus lived a sinless and perfect life. Pop quiz on the Ten Commandments. Can you think of any Ten Commandment off the top of your head? In your head, you got it in your head? Have you broken it? Think of a second Ten Commandment. Broken it? Jesus broke in none. You know there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament? Six, 613, right? I was studying them two weeks ago, last week. That's a lot of commandments to not break. It's a lot of things that God said not to do, or to do and avoid, you know, um, not doing. It's really hard to live a sinless life. Jesus walked this perfectly. He walked a perfect and sinless life, born of the Father's will, without original sin. He lived life sinless. He was tempted, but he did not sin. And there's a difference between temptation and sin. Um, we've all been tempted, right? 
There are moments in your life where you've been tempted to do something. You can clearly see the path, though. Sometimes God gives you that just light bulb over your head, and you're like, I know what I really want to do, but I know what God wants me to do. And you know you're at that fork, and it might be a really big thing. It might be a little thing. You never, I mean, it's just, I can see which way to go. Jesus has experienced that crossroad. In the Gospels, it gives the account of Jesus going into the wilderness and being tempted. Remember, he was baptized, and his ministry started with a 40-day, 40-night encounter with the devil himself. I'm really glad that's not what happens when we start ministry these days, right? You get out of seminary, you're all green around the ears for ministry, and you get sucked into the wilderness with the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. I don't know how many of us would survive that. Um, Jesus was tempted with every temptation that mankind has ever been tempted with. If you name it, he has been tempted with it. If you have been tempted with it, he has been tempted with it. If you have failed in that temptation, he has succeeded in resisting sin. He lived a sinless and perfect life, which makes him the only perfect substitute and sacrifice for our sin. We're sinful, so we can't unsin ourselves. We can't buy our own salvation. We can't earn it. We needed someone who was sinless and spotless to take our place, to say, all that they did I will undo through me. 2 Corinthians 5.21 reads this way, For our sake he made him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Rough translation, Christ came and took on all the sin of your life, so that through Christ we might have righteousness. God looks at us and sees the righteousness of Christ. Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but he did it without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. It's not just that his hands didn't do sin and his feet didn't do sin, but his heart and his mouth and his mind never sinned. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. This is encouragement to my soul this morning because I have sinned. Confession time. Hi, I'm your pastor. I'm also a sinner, and I need Jesus, as do we all. And when I read things like this, in him there is no sin, and my righteousness is found through him because he took my sin, I really like those verses. Because if you were like me, you have committed some sins, small and large, that grieve God and those around us. We need a sinless Savior to take our place. We believe that he lived a sinless and perfect life. We also believe that Jesus is both fully God, fully man. Um, This is one of the greatest, most beautiful mysteries of the faith. Um, That God would come to earth... And wrap himself in flesh. Remember, incarnation, in the flesh. And by doing so, he did not sacrifice his holy nature. But he is also not any less of a man than we are. Jesus was 100% God, 100% man simultaneously. He was like a 200 percenter, okay? Um, The fancy word for this in theology is called the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union. It's the fancy term that means 100% God and 100% man come together in the God-man that we know as Jesus Christ. Um, Fancy theologians use this term, and basically it means Jesus, our God, came to earth, and he added to himself humanity, and he did not take away his divinity. He was fully God, wrapped in flesh. Jesus is not a superman kind of character. A man with extra strength and extra reading your mind abilities. He is not a superman with godlike abilities. He's also not an alien being who is the weird blend of two natures. Part man, part God, neither fully God nor fully man. He is fully God, fully man. Jesus, this is what Hebrew says, is the radiance of of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Everything that God is, Jesus is in the flesh. 
Colossians 2.9, for him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of God dwells in his body. And Philippians, let's see if I can flip here fast enough, Philippians um, 2, 5 through 11, reads it this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And the English translations say this, he emptied himself. Um, the original word there means to count as valueless. I have heard enough preachers and sermons and devotion thoughts on this passage that teach it wrong and say that Jesus emptied himself of some of his godness so that he could live a life like man. He emptied himself of his ability to be in all places at all times. He emptied himself of his ability to insert characteristic of God. And he had to take those away from himself so that he could be man and be with us in the way that we are with each other. But that's not true. While the English translation of this verse often reads, he emptied himself. The understanding of the original language is that he counted those things valueless. He counted his very being as nothing so that he wrapped himself in flesh. He didn't remove God qualities from himself or leave them up in heaven so that he could take them up again one day. He took all of them with him and wrapped them in flesh. And it's like this. Um, I play with my little girl. We like to tickle and wrestle and, you know, it's kind of fun. We don't go WWF on each other, but we wrestle with one another. But she's three and a half and I'm 30. And when I wrestle with my three-and-a-half-year-old princess, I don't unleash the full strength of my 30-year-old father self on her, right? Because if I did, it would go poorly for her. Think of it like that when Jesus came and wrapped himself in the flesh. I relate to my daughter on a level of wrestling that is appropriate for her. And when God came and wrapped himself in flesh, he didn't take away his ability to be God... He just said, listen, I'm just going to choose not to access all of the things which I can in this one moment. I'm going to relate to you on a level that is relatable because if you knew me in all of my glory in this exact moment, you'd probably fall over dead. And I don't want that because I want to bring you into eternal life before you freak out at my presence. He restrained his qualities and he used them as necessary, but he did not set them aside, leave them elsewhere. He retained them all and in humility counted them as something to not seek after so that he could live as we live, be tempted as we are tempted, feel as we feel, endure as we endure, struggle as we struggle, love, live, laugh, cry, mourn, and enjoy the ups and downs of life. He was every bit of a human being as you are and I am, but he was also God. The hypostatic union, God and man joined together in the God-man, Jesus Christ. We believe that this sinless, born-of-a-virgin God-man died. We believe that he really, physically died. The Old Testament foretold Jesus, his birth, and his death. Psalm 22, written 800 years before crucifixion, crucifixion existed, before the Persians you know, like we talked about in Esther and the big stake, which was the precursor to crucifixion. 800 years before that, Psalm 22 detailed what Jesus would suffer on the cross. Scorning, mocking, bones being out of joint, heart melting in the chest, thirsty, lots being cast for clothing, rejected by men. Does that sound like the gospel account of the crucifixion to you? That's in Psalm 22. Isaiah 53 details the same thing. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our sins and crushed for our wrongdoings. 
And the New Testament gives eyewitness record of the crucifixion of Jesus. Matthew 27 gives the play-by-play of the execution. Talks about Jesus and his body dead, removed from the cross, buried. Mark 15 gives the exact time of the death of Jesus. John 19 states that when Jesus' side was pierced with the sword, his heart melted, meaning blood and water ran out. Mark 15 tells us that Jesus breathed his last breath and that a Roman centurion recognized that Jesus was dead and that also he was the Son of God. Aside from Scripture, we can take what we know of science, what it physically means to be crucified and to apply it to a man. Um, We've been through this on the Good Friday service, so here's a brief overview. Christ was emotionally under great stress leading up to the crucifixion. So much so that he sweated drops of blood the night he was taken into custody. Beaten with a cat of nine tails. Chunks of flesh ripped from his back and legs. Forced to carry a wooden cross up to Golgotha. Suffering insults along the way. He was hung on the cross. Lifted up and dropped violently into a hole to keep it upright. It would tear his feet and wrists and body out of joint. Crucifixion suffers you. Because to breathe you have to lift upward on the cross by which you are nailed to, to check and see if a uh, man was dead, the Roman soldier would take a sword. And in this case, fulfilling prophecy, not one bone was broken. They didn't whack his legs to kill him. They pierced into his side. He was already dead. Water and blood poured out, which means they pierced the pericardium, the sac around the heart, and then the heart itself. Then he was taken from the cross dead, He was embalmed with oils and spices, up to 100 pounds of them, wrapped in linen, buried in a tomb alone with no medical care for three days. Jesus was really physically dead. And in fact, the extra-biblical sources will testify to this as well. If you do not believe in the Bible, and you do not believe in biblical Jesus because you get biblical Jesus information from the Bible, which you do not believe in, then extra-biblical sources... Non-Christian historians from the days of Jesus wrote about this man named Christus who was crucified and buried at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Tacitus, Josephus, and Justin Martyr are historical references that speak in detail of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. If you do not believe in the word of God, you may believe in history because those are historical records not disputed by historians. We believe that not just that he died, right, because that would be devastating, but that he rose from death because he is fully God and fully man. He physically rose from the dead. Scripture tells us that he appeared to his friends, he appeared to his disciples, and he appeared to 500 people at one time. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 is the earliest recorded statement on the resurrection. It was penned 24 years after the event and was written by an eyewitness. It says this, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day to fulfill Scripture. John 20 tells us that Mary Magdalene heard his voice, ran to him, and hugged him. Luke 24 tells us that he appeared to several disciples, walked with them, ate with them, challenged them to touch and believe and see that he was real, alive, and well. John 21, he had a picnic at the beach with his disciples. And then, then, after his resurrection, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the Great Commission, the verse that we quote a lot, go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them, and sometimes we forget that that happened after his resurrection. But most obviously, if you do not believe what Scripture says, history will tell us the tomb is empty. And if the tomb is empty, where's his body? Well, the body wasn't stolen. Scripture tells us in Matthew 28 that guards were stationed at the tomb and were told to lie because the tomb was empty and they had no explanation for it. They were told to lie about the tomb, say they'd fallen asleep and the disciples stole the body. But even the religious leaders and the guards knew that it wasn't true. It wasn't possible that his body was stolen. His death was recorded by Tacitus, Martyr, and Josephus, but so was his resurrection. 
that the tomb was empty because Jesus was physically alive again of his own power because he is a God-man who lived a sinless life and died a perfect death in our place. And the last thing that we believe about Jesus is that he is king and he is coming again. He is ruling and reigning right now. Scripture tells us that Jesus is king. He has perfectly completed the work of atoning for your sin. You get that? Perfectly completed the forgiveness of your sins. It's done. And he's seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Mark 16. So the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And you only really sit down when you're done with your work. Acts 7. Stephen, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus was at the right hand of God. Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And Revelation 19 says this, And the twenty-four elders... And the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who is seated on a throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah, our God reigns. The one sitting on the throne is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of of lords. So not only is Jesus currently king and reigning over all things from heaven, but one day he will come again to the church to collect his bride on earth. John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would not have told you that I've gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you will be as well. So why does this matter? Like, it's, it's one thing to sit around a room and have theologically astute conversations with people who use words like hypostatic union and incarnation and um, kenosis of the spirit and all these words that, like, they're fun words to talk about, but if you don't understand what's being said and you can't know what you believe, then you're going to struggle and get tossed about by the winds of culture. Why does it matter that you have a God that cares so much for your life and soul that he gave up his throne for a time to come to earth, live among us, die for us, and then welcome us into his family? Why does that matter? That's a question that in your own heart and mind you need to wrestle with. This is also what we call salvation. That God enters into human history, dies for your sins, saves you from something terrible. We believe that we need saving from sin and its consequence. As Christians, this is what we believe. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Here's what we need to recognize. We sin. The sin that we have done, even if we have just sinned once in our life, we have earned death for eternity. Not just a physical death, but a second death. The wages of sin is death, and unfortunately for us, I'm afraid we have all sinned more than once, right? We have all sinned multiple times, sometimes in the same day. Sometimes there's that one sin that keeps getting us over and over again. All have fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. And we believe that there are two eternities for mankind, just two, two alone, no other options, heaven and hell. Luke 16 tells this story um, about Lazarus and a rich man. Are you familiar with this parable? Rich man and Lazarus, and Lazarus was poor and sick, and dogs licked his wounds, and it was a miserable life. The rich man had everything. He was loaded. He had good food and a place to live. Jesus told us that both men died, that Lazarus went to heaven, and the rich man went to hell, and that heaven was a place of rest and joy for Lazarus, and hell was a place of, quote, anguish and eternal torment for the rich man. Um, 
Eternal life or eternal death are the two options. This is what the biblical view of salvation says. Heaven or hell, blessing or suffering, grace or wrath, there are no exceptions. You are not an exception. Your children are not exceptions. Your parents are not exceptions. Your neighbors are not exceptions. Your co-workers are not exceptions. There are no exceptions. You do not have a special arrangement with God in which he permits you to sin the sins that you like best. And with a wink and a nod and a little extra community service, you get into heaven. That's not how it works. Scripture doesn't give wiggle room here. In fact, the wrath of God is mentioned 600 times in the Bible. Jesus spent 15% of his teaching on the wrath of God, on hell and judgment for sins. Half of his parables alone were on the topic. Jesus, the most loving, humble, helpful servant who ever lived, the nice guy, your best friend, he talked about hell a lot. And some would say that Jesus is so loving and certainly he doesn't believe in hell because a loving God doesn't talk about hell, let alone allow people to go there. And to that, I would say that because scriptures say this, uh, the most loving person who has ever lived not only believed in hell, but clearly and emphatically repeatedly teaches on it, which must mean that our sin is more damnable than we could comprehend. If the most loving, compassionate, grace-filled person who ever walked the face of the planet would spend so much of his time telling us how bad our sin is, it must be worse than we can think. It must be worse cosmically than we can imagine. If it takes the most loving person to speak in it in such stark terms... Not only does Jesus believe in hell and tell us to avoid it, but he rules over hell. It's not this place that is devoid of him. It is, but in a different sense. He rules over the kingdom of hell as well. The existence of hell and the instruction by Jesus about hell reveal to us how sinful sin is and how rebellious we are. He speaks not out of spite or anger or meanness. He speaks out of love when he tells us these things so that see, we would see the danger of our sin and the need for salvation from it. It's like this. You're in the road and you see a small child. Small child's walking across the street and you see a semi-truck coming. You know the consequence of the semi-truck against the small child. It is not going to go well. Now, they might not recognize the consequence of that. Children don't look both ways. They just go. You have an opportunity to say, get out of the way or to run and push the child. Maybe risking yourself in the process. You might get hit by the semi-truck. The child might get a scraped knee, a broken tooth, but out of the way of the semi-truck. We need to understand that this is what Jesus did for us. We didn't know what was going on. We were in the road blind. Something devastating was coming towards us. And Jesus ran and said, not them but me, and pushed us out of the way. We're still damaged by the fall, but we escape second death through Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the only path to salvation. Other faith systems will tell you differently. There's many paths to the top of the mountain. You can go this way or that way or around the circle. Or if you do enough deeds or if you give enough money or if you win enough souls or if you do this or do that or if you believe in Buddha or if you... None of that is true. You're not sinless. You cannot earn your own salvation. Hebrews 9:22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sin. If you have sinned, and all have sinned, then the penalty for that sin is death. There must be blood sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, they offered animals. They took bulls, sheep, sacrificed them. So often, in fact, were animals being killed in the place of people in the Old Testament that there was actually a river of blood that ran out of the back of the temple because so many animals were dying to cover the sins of the people. And throughout the Old Testament, there was this picture. 
And then Jesus enters the world, and as we talked about before, he wrapped himself in flesh, born without sin, grew, lived, ministered, warned people about sin, of the coming judgment, and then one day he was arrested. And he went willingly to the cross. And on the cross, he offered himself willingly, freely, to be the sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. And in those moments, when Jesus was on the cross, God looked at his son, Jesus, made him to be the one spotless lamb, for all time, all people, all sin. And then Jesus' blood poured out from him in the final sacrifice. And God chose to see Jesus as detestable instead of you. It was written, it was the Lord's will to crush Jesus and to cause him to suffer because Jesus' life was a guilt offering for your sin. So Jesus, the most loving, gentle, kind servant, the God in flesh who healed and prayed and wept for others, died for you. And the wrath of God was poured out on him instead of you. He bore the weight of that for you and for all people, for all time, and then he died. And then, having completed that, sat down at the right hand of God. And it is because of this willing sacrifice that Scripture tells us these things. John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 1 Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and man. That's the God-man, Christ Jesus. Acts 4.2, there is salvation, which is good news, right? There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name in heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So how is one saved? Ephesians says it's by grace alone through faith in Christ Jesus, not of our works, not of our own effort, but it's a gift of God to you. That he looks at you and he goes, you just didn't know any better. So I've provided a way for you to escape, to escape sin, to receive salvation. This morning, if you have put your trust in Christ already, then you love, believe in, and belong to Jesus. You have literally been saved from death and destruction because of the blood of Christ. Your life is renewed day in and day out, right? Your hope endures all things. Your God is forever good and just and loving, and his compassion for you never ends. His grace and his mercy are lavished upon you instead of wrath. And after you die this physical death, you will spend eternity in heaven, in spiritual life, Having been saved from the wrath of God, you are currently filled with the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit compels you to live a life holy and pleasing to God, enabling you to resist sin, even though you may be tempted, enabling you to speak the truth into the life of other people, to be a light in a world that is dark. That is you if you believe in Christ. If you do not believe in Christ and you're not sure about the Bible and about what God's Word says about who Jesus is. But there's something in you that's like, I, don't, I just don't know. Then you don't love, you don't believe in, and don't belong to Jesus. And there's only two categories. Your sins will still count against you. And if you die before you love, believe in, and belong to Jesus, then you spend the rest of eternity separated from hope and goodness and joy and love and God because you choose to reject his son and the offer of salvation. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. You have a choice to make. This morning, you can choose to receive Christ's offer, to be saved from your sins, to live eternal life, to have hope that endures all things. And becoming a Christian, life might not get easier. Can I get an amen? Right? But life gets better, right? It might not get easier, but it gets better because we have Jesus. So this morning, there's a choice. You, know, you can choose to believe or not to believe. It's up to you. God doesn't make you follow him. but He wants you to because he loves you. But a choice, a non-choice, a choice, a, not, a non-choice in this moment is a choice for the negative. Can I phrase it that way? If you choose to wait, that's still a choice for the negative. Jesus does make this promise, though. You choose to embrace his free gift of love and salvation. He will always be with you. He will always renew you. He will always help you through the really difficult parts in life. And then you will turn around and you will look and you will go, wow, 
that was really difficult, but I'm really glad God was with me. And I can see there is a hope through this. God is good all the time. Amen? And when you are one of his children, there are blessings to be had in this life. Um, We believe in biblical Jesus. We believe in the Jesus who was born, who lived a sinless life, who died for us, who rose for us, who gives us salvation. When we sing here in just a moment, and if the worship team would come up, when we sing here in just a moment, we're singing to that Jesus. We're not singing to cultural Jesus. We're not singing to best friend Jesus who wink and a nod I have a deal with. We're singing to the Jesus who looked at your sin and said, that is so horrible and you don't even know that I will willingly die in your place so that you don't have to endure something terrible. That's the Jesus we sing to this morning. That's the Jesus that we worship every day of our life. So would you stand to your feet, worship Christ, the God-man, the sinless Savior who died for your sins. Right, it's good to give the Lord a hand. Why don't you go ahead and give the Lord a hand this morning? It is right and just that we should give him a hand, and more than just a hand, we should give him our lives. Lord, we give you thanks this morning um, for all that you did for us because you gave your life for us. We, in turn, just want to give our life back to you. Thank you for being a God who is perfect and not perfect in the sense that you look down on us and go insignificant people who can't get it right, but perfect in the sense of, oh, I love these people and I can't wait to make them my own, to renew them day by day. Lord, we give you all the praise and all the glory. And it's in your Son's name, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things. Amen. Here's the benediction. Jesus is alive and well, seated at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit fills you to the fullness that you could possibly imagine. Your sins are forgiven. Now that's good news, right? Go and live it and share it this week. Amen. Go in peace.